Okay, in this podcast, we're going to talk about the concept of cognition. This is a good transition from mobility to cognition because those two concepts relate. If you think about patients who um, have limited mobility and can't get up and get around, that affects um, their sensory stimuli, which eventually could affect their cognition. Also, vice versa, if someone has a cognitive disorder, whether it's from like a traumatic brain injury or maybe they have Alzheimer's dementia, then that also is going to affect their ability to ambulate in, in their gait. So the concept of cognition, the definition is it's the mental action or process of acquiring knowledge and understanding through thought, experience, and the senses. So, of course, there's a continuum um, where you can have a cognitive impairment or you can have basic cognitive function, which usually involves perception, pattern recognition, and attention. And then they, there's also what we call higher order cognitive function. Um, and this is being able to learn, uh, comprehend, having insight, being able to problem solve, being able to reason, um, being able to make decisions, having creativity, and metacognition, which is thinking about your thinking. So things that we have to have going on in the body to have cognitive function, um, those include perfusion. So I have to have blood flow to the brain for it to function appropriately. The brain also needs glucose. That's its main source of energy and being, being able to function. So glucose is important. And of course, oxygen. So if we think about patients who might have perfusion issues for whatever reason, that could affect cognition. If we think about patients who have diabetes and their blood sugar is dropping, so you know their glucose is going down, that could affect their cognition. They start, might start to get confused. Um, and then also, if you think about patients who have oxygenation issues, for example, somebody who has um, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, if they're having an episode where they're not able to breathe very well, their oxygen level is dropping, then that could affect the oxygenation to the brain. And we could then see cognition issues where, again, they're having this altered mental status. So all those things have to be going on and be adequately provided for the brain to function properly properly. If we think about when we're born, um, the, there's certain parts of the brain that are well-developed and others that aren't. So as we age, you know, going into adolescence, the brain is growing in mass. It's growing in its um, neural connections that it's making. And there's also this myelination occurring. So everything's um, getting very um, mature and it's able to reach that kind of higher order cognitive function. Um, and then as we age, some of the normal things that happen as we age and we're reaching, you know, older adulthood is there's this reduction in atrophy of neurons. There's a slowing of neural responses. So this does not mean that just because you age, your cognitive function declines and you get confused. That's definitely a misconception. Um, what, what truly happens is that things may just take longer for you to do. So this kind of higher order uh, level of thinking, like the problem solving. So you can have a 70-year-old who can still problem solve. It might just take them longer than it did when they were 30 years old. Now, if we do truly have a patient that is confused um, and their cognitive function has declined and they have an impairment in a way where they can't do those things, 
then there's a medical condition that's causing it. It's not because they have aged. So I think that's important to understand, especially if you're going to be caring for the elderly. Um, you know, if you do notice that your patient is confused, you know, sometimes we can often just jump to the conclusion that, well, they're an older adult, they're the elderly. This happens as you age, but that's not true. So you would want to ask yourself, is this a new onset confusion? Did they have this on the previous shift? You know, what's in their chart? Is there anything about confusion in their chart? Because if there's not, then you got to start investigating what's going on. You know, if they don't have a disease process, you know, maybe it's a medication causing the confusion. Maybe it's being in the hospital causing the confusion. And I'll tell you, the big worry here with cognition and that cognitive decline is the safety aspect of it. Um, so it's important that we try to figure out what's causing it, because if there's something we can do, then we want to remedy um, this, the situation. If it's not caused by something kind of acute and it's more of a chronic thing, an actual medical diagnosis, then we just need to take certain measures to keep the patient safe. So let's talk about um, just a f some different kind of broad categories that you might see that kind of fall under this altered cognition state. So one of the main ones that we're going to talk about is Alzheimer's dementia, and this is classified as a neurocognitive disorder. This is something that slowly progresses over time. It's also considered a regressive disorder. So it's, it's like the patients regress back. Um, they, they're not able to perform those functions that um, they should be able to at, at that age. So they, they have this sign of regression. Um, there's also another thing. Um, cognitive disorder called um, delirium. So delirium um, is actually an acute state. And we often see this in patients who are in new environments. So if a patient, um, an older adult comes into the hospital, and it's typically in the elderly, they come into the hospital, um, there could be an onset of delirium, especially in states where they're overstimulated. So if you think about an older adult in the ICU, um, there's this high risk of delirium. It, on, the onset of it is very rapid, so it can occur overnight. And they have a real hard time maintaining attention um, and awareness. They can even have hallucinations or delusions, mood swings. Um, and so we would just have to keep in mind, um, you know, things that we can do to maybe decrease some stimulation if that's the cause of it, an overstimulation. Or sometimes it might be, uh, being on several different medications that can alter the mind. And maybe we can speak to the physician about altering some of the medications they're on to try to get that delirium to go away. Another real common cause of delirium is um, a UTI. So if a patient develops urinary tract infection, we can often see delirium develop, especially with the elderly. Um, other things that we can have <clears throat> as far as categories of altered cognition, um, just plain cognitive impairment. So this isn't dementia, but it's kind of a state between normal cognitive function and true impairment. So for example, you have a football player who gets a traumatic brain injury. This would be considered a cognitive impairment. They may fully recover um, after that acute state, but you know this kind of increases their risks down the road, especially if they have multiple cognitive impairments or traumatic brain injuries of developing Alzheimer's dementia. Uh, or just of developing dementia, not necessarily Alzheimer's dementia. Um, and then there's also different types of focal cognitive disorders, like patients who have memory loss or amnesia. 
Um, one of the other exemplars that we're going to talk about, besides Alzheimer's dementia, is intellectual disability. Um, so these patients have limitations of cognitive function and they have a below average IQ. We're also going to talk about learning disabilities. Um, and the important thing to understand with learning dis disabilities is that these patients typically have average or above average IQ, but they have challenges in taking data signals and processing the info. All right. So that's there's a whole list of different types of um, altered cognition. Now let's think again about the consequences of that. So I already stated that the main thing we're worried about is safety in these patients. Um, because depending on, you know, if they have a, an acute versus a chronic condition that's altering cognition, chronic conditions could lead to um, other complications because of medications that they have to be on chronically. They might have to go into the hospital more frequently or live in a long-term care facility. This could put financial strains on the patients. Um, another big thing to think about is functional ability. You know, whether it's an acute state of impaired cognition or, or something that's chronic, can the patient care for themselves? So there's going to be a lot of resources that these patients need. Um, and as far as what we're going to do to assess, um, we're going to look at some different assessment scales. Um, one of the first things I would want to do is assessing that level of consciousness. You know, you ask your patient those questions, you know, can you tell me your name and date of birth? Do you know where you're at? Uh, do you know what day, what time it is? Um, do you know what's been going on with you? Um, so asking some of those questions, conversing with the patient, and checking that level of consciousness and mental state. Um, if, if we're not sure if something's a new onset or not, there's certain assessments that we can do. One of them is called the mini mental state exam. There's also a confusion assessment method that we can use. Um, so these can all kind of help us gauge like where a patient is at and there's certain scores that you get and then that means, you know, if they have a cognitive impairment or not. So we'll talk more about those. And then just thinking about ways that we can prevent cognitive impairments. Being safe, right? Teaching patients about safety and, and decreasing high-risk behaviors. Um, some things are just genetically passed on um, that we can't control. Um, so with those, then genetic counseling would be important to help with parents. Um, things like I said before, like multiple medications or certain high-risk meds like sleeping medications, those are risky in the elderly, so avoiding those if possible. Trying not to overstimulate a patient, also trying not to understimulate a patient. Um, kind of finding that balance of things. We want to make sure that um, we, to help maintain safety, that we um, provide a routine for patients because this can also help decrease agitation. Because uh, as you can imagine, if you can't understand someone talking to you, that could create anxiety and agitation. Um, so doing things like um, routines can help decrease that agitation. Um, and then, like I mentioned before, we could do these assessment scales to see where patients are at. This is definitely like a secondary uh, prevention strategy. 
And then um, there was a story about a year or so ago on the news. I'm pretty sure it was just the local news about now they've been trying to use CT and MRI scans as a way to screen patients for being at risk for things like dementia. Um, so that's pretty fascinating. Um, and then let me see what else. I think that's about it that I want to talk about here for just in general kind of cognition. Um, so we've talked about kind of how the brain evolves. We've talked about different categories of impaired cognition. Um, we've talked about some assessment features, some priorities as far as safety goes, some consequences of having impaired cognition. And so then we'll get into some other details of specifics um, in other podcasts. Okay, we're going to talk about Alzheimer's dementia. So this is um, a good example of a cognitive impairment. There are several other types of dementia, but we're going to focus on Alzheimer's dementia. And again, this is a progressive disease, um, so it's occurring slowly over time. They're not exactly sure of the cause, but it could be genetic or environmental factors, possibly even viral. Um, and we see, you know, if you're if you're looking at the brain. Um, from a scan, they see plaques and these tangles and some degeneration of the brain. Um, and so patients with Alzheimer's disease, they don't have enough acetylcholine. And acetylcholine is a neurotransmitter that is needed to help make connections. Um, so patients who have Alzheimer's dementia have too little acetylcholine. They can also have too much glutamate. Glutamate is actually an excitatory neurotransmitter. So that kind of causes things in the brain to get a little hectic. Um, so we can give different medications, which I'll talk about in another podcast, to help um, medications that can be given to help make connections, since that's a problem. Also medications that can be given to help kind of decrease that excitement that's going on because there's too much of it. And the thing about having too much glutamate and too much excitatory neurotransmitters, the thing about that that's bad is... The, the neurotransmitters, like, the, they get the, so excited that then the neurons just die. It's like overstimulated type of thing. And if you can imagine, if neurons are dying, then that's going to affect the way that your brain functions. So Alzheimer's disease does have um, stages since it happens over time and it's progressive. Um, in the, um, there's some great charts and tables and um, alerts in um, the medical surgical book that you're provided that can be very beneficial to help it, helping understand Alzheimer's dementia. Um, so just a quick overview, there's three stages. We see an early stage of Alzheimer's, a middle, and a late. In the earlier stage, you know, if I'm assessing a patient, the things that I would see are typically they can still do things on their own. Um, they might forget names or misplace some things. Um, they really, um, can't really travel alone, um, because of the fact that they're forgetting some things. Um, they might lose some initiative or just have some mild impaired cognition and judgment issues. So if you think about it, especially with Alzheimer's happening, typically, um, this is seen in patients older than 65, this might be some of that kind of slowed down cognition that we might expect as we age. Um, and again, you know, cognitive function, 
Um, you don't become confused because you age, but things start to slow down as you age. As mentioned in the other podcast about cognition, you might still be able to problem solve at, you know, beyond 65. It just might take you longer. So in this early stage of Alzheimer's, it's often missed because it starts to look like just the typical things that we see. Um, so some, sometimes we don't catch it until middle to late stage, which is why I think that they're starting to investigate doing these um, screenings and doing the scans like the CT MRI to see if we can catch that early on and see the changes in the brain um, before they actually occur and, and help patients. And one of the um, one of the good things you can do, like if you know someone who's at risk for Alzheimer's disease, you know maybe they have it's a family history of it. Um, one of the things that they can be proactive on is doing things that help stimulate the brain, reading crossword puzzles, you know things that keep their mind going, um, is an is important part of possibly um, preventing Alzheimer's. So as they kind of progress. We get into this middle stage, um, they start to have impairment of all cognitive functions. So everything's becoming difficult to do. They're becoming disoriented. Um, they're really starting to be dependent on others to help them with activities of daily living. Um, speech could start to become an issue where they might not be able to articulate words anymore. Um, and then something that's kind of forgotten um, not so obvious is they can actually start to have trouble trouble with the urination as far as being incontinent because that is a cognitive process there to sending those signals. So we might see incontinence in that um, second stage as well as some trouble sleeping. They might just start to wander. So again, this safety concern comes up. If they're wandering around, if they leave the house and they're alone and they don't know where they are, um, some as you can imagine, some bad things could happen. And you often see... You know, I know, you know, driving in, um, you know, driving down on the highway, you often see like the alerts for missing vehicles or missing person. Um, and it's got the vehicle tag number on there. Um, so it's, it's very unfortunate, um, this disease and how it kind of robs the mind um, of being able to function. And then finally, as they transition into that late stage, this is really where things really start to become um, very difficult for family, friends, loved ones um, to see because at this point they're just totally incapacitated, bedridden, um, can't function at all, totally dependent on ADLs. Um, and at this point they've really lost mobility and verbal skills, so they might not talk at all. And something that comes along with this often is not being able to swallow and eat anymore, which is truly traumatic for family um, to not be able to feed or see their loved one eat and enjoy food. And um, I've seen this in um, patients when I was part of a palliative care team um, doing some clinicals with them. And it was just very sad because, you know, family, this would traumatize them and they would want to put a feeding tube in the patient. And you know, that it satisfies the family to know that the patient's getting the, the feeding. But think of all of the complications that can happen with that. And that was kind of the conversation that we were often having is the, the infection risk of, of placing the feeding tube. The fact that the patient doesn't even understand what it is 
and they're going to rip it out. They get ag easily agitated, and then that could lead to complications. Um, and the feeding tube will get them food, but it doesn't give them that, that satisfaction of like the actual action or process of eating. Um, so a lot of times patients or families would end up changing their mind with that discussion, but some wouldn't. And, you know, then you just have to do what you can to keep the patient safe. You know, one of the things that we really try not to do is the restraint option. Restraints are always the last option because of the fact that that can make the patient even more agitated by tying them down. Um, and you also don't really want to use chemical restraints. So just giving them medications to keep them sedated is not the, the best option either. Now, um, I will get into some medications in another podcast, and I will mention one that may be used um, to help calm a patient. But again, this isn't, isn't something that we're frequently going to do. It's not like you... It's wrong to use it in a sense of, I have to keep going in this patient's room every minute, so I'm going to give them this sedating medication so that they stay calm and I can go take care of other things. You know, that's not right. That's not the right way to use things. Um, versus if there's a procedure that needs to be done and you give a patient something to calm them for the procedure. Um, so these patients, you know, you got to find, be creative and find other ways to help them that are not pharmacological. Um, oftentimes we're going to see sitters used for these patients, you know, somebody being in there with them one-on-one -on -one to keep them safe. Um, something that you have to be on alert for is what's called sundowning or sundowning syndrome. So once the sun starts to go down, um, that can cognitively affect patients and kind of set things off where they go into this kind of exacerbation state where their confusion goes up a notch um, and they can become more agitated during that time. Um, with this kind of, they get like their day and nights mixed up. Um, so, you know, keeping a close eye on patients during that time period when the sun's going down. Uh, we need to be able to access patients easily. We don't want patients to be near doors and exits where they could, you know, wander off and escape and possibly get injured. We don't want to overstimulate patients, but we also don't want as the night the um, sun goes down and it becomes nighttime that darkness is what can kind of scare them um, I remember um, in the hospital where I worked we always had like um, once you turned the lights off in the room there was this little night light like kind of built into the wall that automatically came on um, so things like that where it's like a low level light not overstimulated could help patients kind of um, kind of check their surroundings and not get quite as upset or scared. And then um, some other things to think about as far as helping these patients and keeping them safe is in the early stages, we can help reorient the patient, something called reality orientation, and you should read about it. Um, you can do this early on in the disease because they're still cognitively with it for the most part. Um, so we can help them remember and reorient things. Now, as the disease progresses, you're not, you can't tell them to, do you remember this? And they're not going to remember that. And that's just going to cause more, dis more agitation. Um, so as the disease progresses, when it's moderate to severe, we use something called validation therapy. So when we see the patient is upset about something, we acknowledge their feelings and their concerns. Um, so a good example of this was, um, we were on a memory care unit one time, 
and this the lady um, with Alzheimer's was wandering around and she was very frantic because she could not find her daughter and she knew that she was supposed to be waiting for her daughter and she wasn't here to come and pick her up yet so you know on a if you didn't know that the lady had Alzheimer's disease, you might think like, oh, is this, is this a true fact? But we knew she had Alzheimer's because she was on the memory care unit. Um, but I can't, you know, at that point tell her that, you know, your, your, um, your daughter has passed away. Like she, she's not going to remember that, that, that her daughter passed away 10 years ago or whatever. Um, so I'm going to validate her concerns. And one of the things that we can do to, val- to validate is to help them reminisce. So tell me about your daughter. You know, you know what does she look like? Um, you know, what does she do? Because that helps them reminisce. So it kind of satisfies that feeling and that anxiety of, you know, looking for her daughter. Um, but it doesn't agitate her by telling her things that she's not going to remember as far as that her daughter passed away and she's not going to show up to pick her up. Um, so... You have to kind of test the waters. Every patient will be different and kind of, you know, try different things. And if you notice, you know what, this this isn't working, asking about the daughter, then let's try to distract the patient. Let's try to take her in the other room where they're doing some activities and see if that gets her mind off of this thing that she's worried about right now. So we can use some redirection, too, when they're upset. So those are just some key things to think about with Alzheimer's dementia Again, there's a lot of safety aspects in this and and how to keep the patient safe from wandering, how to keep the patient safe, um, you know, whether they're in the home or in the hospital, thinking about those differences um, and how to communicate with the patient as well. Okay, now we're going to talk about some medications that could be used for a patient who has um, a cognition impairment. Mainly, we're focusing on medications used for dementia. So one of the major classes used for Alzheimer's dementia is cholinesterase inhibitors. So in the other podcast about Alzheimer's disease, I mentioned that patients with Alzheimer's have too little acetylcholine, which is a neurotransmitter that's needed to help make connections to, you know, process and and for your brain to function. Um... So if, if the patient has too little of these, um, we want to take a drug that's going to help increase that. So there's something called acetylcholinesterase, and this actually goes around and inhibits acetylcholine. It kind of eats it up and gets rid of it. So cholinesterase inhibitors are going to stop that acetylcholinesterase from working, which that will then allow the body or the brain to have more acetylcholine available. So this is going to help patients with Alzheimer's dementia. So there's some examples of um, these classes. Some of the common ones you can see used are Donazepel or Donapazel, D-O-N-E-P-E-Z-I-L, Rivastigmine, and Galantamine. So those are some of the three common examples that fall under the cholinesterase inhibitors. So taking these drugs is not going to get rid of the Alzheimer's disease or prevent it in any way, but it's going to help maintain memory, thinking, and speaking skills. And it can do that for several months, like even up to a year. So it's going to kind of help keep their symptoms at bay 
to kind of keep them functional for a longer period of time. So the other drug that we can see used um, is memantine. And in the, um, in the podcast about Alzheimer's disease, I talked about glutamate. And patients with Alzheimer's disease can have excessive amounts of glutamate, which is an excitatory neurotransmitter. Um, and so having too much of those, like I said, if the neurons get too excited, then they start to die off. So we don't want that to happen for a patient with Alzheimer's disease. We want to keep the neurons alive so they can function. So memantine is a glutamate receptor antagonist. So an antagonist means it's going to block something. So it's going to block the glutamate so there's not this overexcitement. Um, and this can be helpful for patients with Alzheimer's dementia um, because of it can delay the functional decline and moderate to severe Alzheimer's disease. So again, it can kind of help prolong their functional ability and their, and their cognition kind of prolong that, keeping that together intact. Um, the thing about both of these, that the class of drugs, the cholinesterase inhibitors and the memantine, that specific drug, is that they can lower the, lower the patient's blood pressure and lower the heart rate. So these patients are at risk for um, falling they can have syncope if their blood pressure drops um, upon standing or if their heart rate's dropping um, when, you know, ambulating and walking around. So that's one of the things that's our most concern. Yeah, they have other side effects like GI upset, you know, nausea, vomiting. Um, but the big one is the fact that their blood pressure, heart rate could drop, causing syncope, which could then lead to falls. And that's a safety concern for these patients. Um, another thing that could happen with cholinesterase inhibitors, actually memantine as well, is we could see some um, breathing difficulties. They can have some bronchospasms, um, which could cause some dyspnea or difficulty in breathing. Um, so we would also want to watch out for that as well. Um, don't see that quite as commonly as you do the syncope. Um, but as you can imagine, breathing problems would also be a priority if that, if that was a side effect of these drugs. Um, and then another good another side effect to mention is something called ataxia. So these drugs can also cause ataxia, which is um, difficulty with movement. So they could have some gait issues, when, which now even increases their risk of falling even more. Hey, the only other drug that I want to mention is trazodone. So trazodone is actually um, considered, I'm pretty sure it's considered a sedative or an antidepressant. Um, so as you can imagine, something that's a sedative or antidepressant can kind of help, can kind of slow things down. Um, I would be worried, is it, <coughs> excuse me, sedating the patient too much? There's a risk for hallucinations or delusions as a possible side effect. And... As described in the other podcast, we don't want to use this as a chemical restraint in the aspect of, you know, my patient keeps getting up and wandering around. I need him to stay in bed. Let's dose him up with trazodone throughout the day. That's not acceptable. There could be instances um, where this is used, you know, maybe the patient has depression in dementia and this is helpful for them. <coughs> Excuse me again. Or, like in an acute situation, if they have to go for a procedure and need to lay still or be calm, this could use to help 
keep them calm in that acute period. <coughs> Excuse me. So again, we want to, you know, these are some common drugs that could be used for patients with Alzheimer's dementia. And there's some safety aspects that come along with those, with those side effects, so keeping those in mind. Um, and then there's some non-pharmacological interventions that are commonly seen used as well. Thinking about things to keep the patient safe. I mentioned quite a few of those in the Alzheimer's disease podcast. Um, but also there could be some behavior modification therapy to help these patients. <clears throat> 